All right, we're starting a new sermon series this morning, um, and if you, if you get the chance, you can go to our website. Uh, there's actually a, a blog post about the new sermon series, and attached to that blog post is an article for your edification to help equip you and build you up, and, and the article is called Expositional Listening, and it's from a book by a man named Thabiti Anawabli, and the book is, I don't know if I butchered his last name or not, but you just have to roll with it, and so the book is called, um, it's from the Nine Marks series, and it's how, how to be uh, a good church member, essentially, is what the book is about, and I would commend the whole book to to you, but this one article will help you understand what your responsibility is in terms of a sermon. Now, it's not just because I'm egotistical that I'm trying to put some of it back off on you, um, but sometimes it's not that the sermon's bad, it's that you were not listening, right? And so sometimes it's not what I brought in here, it's what you brought in here. And so if you're not intentional, if you're going to put all of the stress-strain curve on me to entertain you, move you, or whatever it may be, guess what's not going to happen? I'm not going to live up to whatever your expectations are, and you're not going to live up to mine either. And so the good news is we want to be equipped in that, and so there is some responsibility on your part to be an active listener, to, and you may say, well, why don't you not preach so long? Maybe I could hang with you better. Well, just get the best out of the third, first 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 52 minutes, whatever. I don't, I don't care. But, but get what you can out of it. And so, uh, but it is, it is truly to equip you. And so if you would, download that and, and, and take some time to read it. It's, a, it's actually a very simple article. It's not written in kind of archaic language or anything like that. It, it truly is for your edification, okay? This sermon series um, is in, entitled, The Church is Called to Be. And then there's my daughter's favorite thing, the ellipsis, which means that it, the conversation continues. And so, and these are going to be sermons, all of them are going to come from Paul's letters, not just one of his letters, but they'll come from different letters that Paul has written. And the point of this series is to help us understand what the church is called to be from a particular perspective right? Uh, we are called as the church to worship and glorify God. We're not actually going to talk about any of that particularly, but what we're going to talk about is how I would love for our church to be described by those who don't go here, by those who don't know us, by those who are de-churched, who don't know God. If they could describe us as a church as generous, missional, which probably would be a word they wouldn't use, but that's an insider word that we would use, that, that they would actually say, hey, we actually care about them and their lives. That's what being missional is, right? and that we would be known for being a praying church. Now, what's interesting about all those things is all those things require dependence and a focus on the other. Now, in between the sermons that are going to be challenging to us from a praxis perspective, we're going to look at how each member of the Trinity is those things. So this morning, we're looking at the fact that God is generous. So there's no way for us to be generous if there's no foundation from which we understand generosity. Amen? And so God has been incredibly and, and mind-blowingly generous to us, his people. And if we, if we begin to understand that, then it's much easier and it's much more fulfilling for us to be generous as a church out of the ground of that reality. Amen? And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And uh, this is an interesting passage. And there's going to be some things in here I'm going to warn you up front um, you need to make sure that you're listening, right? Uh, this is not a bait and switch. I'm not trying to set it up to where you have to listen this morning, but there's going to be a word that for some of you is a very interesting and difficult word, and that word is predestination. 
And we're going to deal with that some this morning. So let's be honest. Is it possible for me in 45 minutes, which is, well, actually now, yeah, 45 minutes, is it possible for me to unpack all that is going to comfort you and make you feel good about every different angle on this thing called predestination? No, it's not. And I want to say up front that some of your questions are more than likely philosophical and not theological. The Bible is not a book of philosophy. It is not concerned with if-then statements. It's not. It's a, it's a book of theology. Now, does that mean we can't ask philosophical questions? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But we've got to be careful where we place the stress. What we're going to read this morning is not going to answer many of your philosophical questions. It's going to ignore them in toto. And so what we want to do is if you are concerned about something that gets preached this morning, if you have something you're wrestling with within that context, then by all means, please, I am here to serve you. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about it, not for the sake of trying to convince you of anything, but to truly hear you out and maybe help you understand some of the nuances of what you're wrestling with so that you can worship the Lord your God better. Amen? Not get tangled up in conversations and doctrines that maybe don't even matter to God at all. And so, um, so please make sure that you don't hear me, and this is the difficult part about speech act, right? I'm going to be speaking in linear fashion. And, the, and I'm going to, I'm, those of you who've been here before, I'm a train going downhill. I don't really stop for long, and I'm not really cyclical. And so, so you may hear something you don't like, and you clip out for, let's say, 10, 15 seconds of commentary. And you didn't hear what I said for 10 or 15 seconds. And so you assume that what you got angry about on the front end, I didn't deal with. At least show me some, show me some grace in bringing it to me and asking me if I meant what you think I meant. Amen? I mean, that's just us caring for each other. Am I interested in some 45-page email exchange where we end up not liking each other very much? No, I'm not. In fact, I... I I'm, I'm, let me be careful here. I don't even want to have this conversation with you over email because I want you to be able to see my body language and see what, how it is I'm responding to you. So if you want to talk about this, you can set it up by email and you can tell me like some of your issue, but I'm not going to get into the conversation with you by email, certainly not by Twitter, 160 characters or less, and I'm certainly not going to do it on Facebook where we can invite all the trolls in. We're not doing that either. And so, so if you want to talk about it, I'd love to sit down with you and let's, let's chat face-to-face so that we can see each other's body language and, and really answer each other's questions in the moment. Amen? And that's because I, I generally want us to care for one another, right? Because do I understand predestination in full? No. And neither are you. And it is mystery, right, in some extent. But what we have here. Is a, is, a, is a truly blessed text that, that hopefully will help us to see just how truly generous God is. So that's enough commentary on it. Let's get to it. The one thing I want you to walk away with this morning from this sermon is that God is most generous in Christ through whom he graciously and lavishly provides redemption, heavenly inheritance, and assurance. As we walk through this text, I want you to particularly pay attention to the number of times that Paul says, in Christ, in him. Those are key phrases and help us understand when he's kind of breaking something down. In fact, the first six, uh, three verses we're going to look at, three through six, is actually 
preamble of sorts where he's just praising God. And in the next verses, he's going to unpack the three things that we get from the reality that God, in fact, is incredibly generous. So here's my question for you before we get started. How would you describe someone who abundantly gives you something that you desperately need, though you have done nothing to receive it and can do nothing to pay it back? How would you describe that person? An trick question, it's in the sermon title. Generous, right? That person is incredibly generous. Someone who would give you what you desperately need, though you cannot afford it, you can do nothing to gain it, and you can do nothing to pay it back. For him to lavishly and graciously give it to you makes him, by definition, generous, doesn't it? Now, how do you describe the person who gives you only a portion of what you think you deserve, and you have to work for the rest of it? not generous. That's not generous at all, right? And so inherent within this conversation that we're about to have with Scripture about God's generosity is your presupposition about who you think you are. And, and your presupposition sets the, converse, the tone for the conversation. So let me give you a couple of, of things to think about. If you think that you are a blank slate, what does that mean? That means that you're neutral. You came into the world neutral. And given the right circumstances, the right petri dish, the right, you know, societal stuff, you would be good. How many of you believe, well, I don't know, show hands, a rhetorical question, that's a terrible idea, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that right now. So, <laughs> so if you believe that you're neutral, right, then your view of God's generosity is deeply affected. If you think that you came into the world good, and deserving of God's grace, if you think that your actions, your deeds, warrant God's response to you, then that also deeply affects how you view him, doesn't it? Think about it for just a moment. If you think that God owes you his love, that he owes you an inheritance, that he owes you redemption because you've been good and you've been perfect, then it deeply affects what you think about him, doesn't it? Interesting quote by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Ryken. It's in your bulletin, so, so listen to it. It's from the book Doctrines of Grace. It says this, If we have a part in salvation, which that goes back to what we think our presuppositions are of who we are. So if we have any part in salvation, if there's anything about us that is deserving of what God gives us, uh, then... Um, I lost my place. Oh, however, small, then our love for God is diminished by just that amount. Let me read that again. If we have a part in salvation, however small, then our love for God is diminished by just that amount. Now, actually, that makes a lot of sense. If you think you had some part in it, why would you give God worship and love for what you did? Right? You're going you're gonna to hold on to that. You're going to own that. And you're only going to give to God the part that you think he actually participated in, right? And then it goes on to say, if it is all God, then our love for him, and I would argue our worship, must be boundless. Must be boundless. And again, that goes back to what is your presupposition? What do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What do you think you deserve? Because it has a deep impact on how you're going to view his grace. So Ephesians 1, and this is really important that we understand the context of who he's talking to. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is actually one long sentence in the Greek, 
okay? So it's just, it's one of those moments where, where Paul can't contain himself. He is just bursting with worship. And if you don't understand that reality at the beginning of Ephesians, you can't understand any of the rest of Ephesians. And so he is bursting with praise, one long sentence because of God's profound generosity. And it serves as foundational for everything that's going to come after. And he's going to unpack each generous benefit based on this reality. Okay? Now, who's he talking to? Because this is crucial. Let me tell you who he's not talking to. He's not talking to an individualistic Western culture who thinks it deserves anything. It's not who he's talking to. He's not talking to a group of people who think they own God because of their birthright. He's not talking to those people. He's not talking to anyone who thinks that they, by their own hand, can garner salvation. No, let me tell you who he's talking to. This is the members of the Ephesian church. He's talking to the Jewish Christians. Now, let's do a little history lesson real quick. How had Israel done up to this point in terms of obedience and blessing and honoring the Lord? Horrible. Their record is terrible. In fact, are they even a cohesive nation at this point? No. Where are they scattered among? They're scattered among Rome, the diaspora. They're all over the place, right? And so they had failed miserably to do what God had called them to do. So what do you think they were thinking in terms of their hope? Do you think that they thought they deserved salvation given their actions? No, Pharisee of Pharisee is going to recognize that he has failed miserably and he is utterly undeserving of God's love. So these Jewish Christians are not only, are they not Pharisees anymore, they're, they're Christians, they're starting to get that their actions cannot save them. And so that's one group, he's talking to the group who failed miserably, who have no hope whatsoever based on their actions. The other group that he's talking to are the Gentiles which is a mixed group of people, right? But they have no pedigree. They're not sons of Abraham by anybody's count. Not by anybody's count that mattered, but the one who mattered most. They are sons and daughters of Abraham. They didn't know that yet. He's talking to folks who have no law. He's talking to folks who worship little wooden things and worship the things that they could fashion by their own hand, that Romans 1 group who suppress the truth in their idolatry, what hope do they have? See, it's critically important that we recognize the people he is talking to is a people who have discovered very clearly and, and obviously we, in and of ourselves, have no hope at all. And if we, as we listen this morning, are not cognizant of that we too are members of that group, Right? So, so if perfection is the means by which we are saved, given our service so far this morning, are we in? No. It has been imperfect, hasn't it? And I'm not calling anybody out. My, my hand is raised. You didn't show up on time, most of you. So you're out, and you're welcome. Um, you, you know, some of you showed up, and, you don't, and you're thinking, I don't even want to be here, right? I mean, this, there's much cooler places to be than this joint, right? And so, so I get it. Your heart's not even right. You don't, you don't want to worship God. You're a rebel. So you have no hope either. Unless, unless the Lord chooses to grant us who are rebels, who are hopeless, 
the hope that only he, the creator of the universe, can provide. And if that doesn't cause us to pause and worship and say amen, then we don't understand the gospel. And so, as we step into this text, let us recognize that who we think we are greatly affects who we think God is. So if you would, hear God's word this morning. This is Ephesians 1, we'll do verses 3 through 6. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let me pause for one second here and unpack a couple of things. First and foremost is that it says that he, before the foundation of the world, chose us in him. So why is that important to a group of people who feel like they have messed it up as royally as you can mess it up so that they would have no hope for eternity? What did he just say? He's saying, before you could even mess up, I loved you. Before you could even get it wrong, I loved you. Before you could even do that which would cast you into the depths of hell, I loved you. That's good news, isn't it? So right away, Paul is taking off the table any discussion about what your actions have to say about your eternal fate. Now, for those of us who understand really who we are, that is great news indeed. Now, do I understand why God did what he did in eternity past? No, it is utterly mysterious to me. But knowing who I am and now knowing who he is, I am thankful it's true. And so he is trying to set the stage right away and show that God is choosing to do that. Why? What is he trying to make us? Holy and blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Any of you ever been blamed for something? Any of you ever got caught in something and you wish the blame would just go away? You messed up so bad you know you're going to have to deal with it, but you don't want to. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. He straight away is saying, even before you could take a breath, I determined you holy and blameless so that someday you could stand before me and worship in spirit and truth, coming boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble. Wow, how good and generous is our God that he in and of himself would choose that for us who are so deeply rebellious. John Calvin, in his comments on this, says this, for if we are chosen in Christ, it is outside of ourselves. So that means it has nothing to do with who we are, has nothing to do with our merit, has nothing to do with anything that is about us. He says, it is outside of ourselves. It is not from the side of our deserving, but because our Heavenly Father has engrafted us through the blessing of adoption into the body of Christ. In short, the name of Christ excludes all merit. It excludes all merit. And everything which men have of themselves. For when he says that we are chosen in Christ, it follows that in ourselves we are unworthy. We're unworthy. Now, I know some of you, 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 if you were, I was a radical anti-theist, right? I was a philosopher guy. So some of you brace on that. You know, all this neurotic self-flagellation. All of this, we're unworthy, we're dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinners. What is wrong with you people? But see, here's the interesting part. Is Paul emphasizing your unworthiness? Is Paul emphasizing your dirty, rotten, filthy stinkingness? No. 
He's emphasizing the generosity of the Lord our God. And as you become and are declared a son or daughter of the Most High God in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, then you are no longer declared any of that unworthiness. You now stand before the Lord your God, His chosen child. Yes, it is neurotic for us as Christians to go back again and again and again to the past which God has cast as far as the east is from the west. You are right if we continue to do that. Is it important that we remember where we came from? Sure it is. Is it, is it good for us to dwell there? No. It is critical that we move forward into our chosenness as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so though the reality of our past must affect how we view God's generosity, it is not where we are to stay. We too are to move on. And so, it goes on, verse 5, it says, In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Let me stop right there for just a second because some of you, if you're philosophical at all, you are, or even not, you're concerned that if we talk about predestination too much, that what that's going to lead to is either determinism or fatalism. And what, is that, what did I just say? Determinism means that something was set into motion mindlessly and thoughtlessly with no regard whatsoever to relationship or the effect it's going to have it's been determined and it goes forward with no concern whatsoever for whom it affects fatalism on the other side is just a more negative view of determinism fatalism basically says that you can't stop what's coming that, that, that there is no impact whatsoever, nothing changes anything, there's no effect, and so you might as well just give up and receive it. Is that what Paul's saying here? Let me tell you why he's not saying either of those things. It's not determinism because what did it say? It says, in love. Wow, what, what does that mean? That means that the Lord, our God, chose us of his own affinity and love. It was a decision that he made, not a decision that he had to make. Do you understand how important that distinction is? Because if you think that God had to love you, then you have him at your beck and call. You can do whatever you want, because he has to love you. It's deterministic. It's not going to lead you to worship. Determinism is actually going to lead you to antinomianism. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that just means you can do whatever you want because you're covered by the blood and you can live it up from here to heaven. Which ain't worship, is it? So we've got to be careful that we don't let ourselves slip into either one of those things. And the world is right to critique us if we do. You're right to critique me if I do. We're right to critique each other if we slip into either one of those things. Because right away, it is saying that the Lord is desirous of a relationship, which is dynamic, right? It's very dynamic, and it, and, it, and it is affected. Your view of God is deeply affected by your worship. Now, he is not changed by your paltry worship. He is not changed by your sin. He is not changed by the lack of what you offer him. You are, which means it's not fatalism or determinism. If it changes you, it can't be either of those things. 
Now, either you will grow in maturity so that between the now and the not yet, you can greater enjoy all of the spiritual blessings that he has granted to you in Christ alone. See, the only person you affect with your worship is you. The Lord is glorified regardless, and if it's not you, it's going to be this pieces of stage, and that microphone will cry out all its own to the glory of God. And so, and it's also not fatalism, because it is actually for our good. He is redeeming us in wisdom, and we're going to read in just a few moments. It's actually a thought-out process on his behalf. And you may say, how can an eternal being think? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not eternal. I'm with you. I'm stuck in the question. And so, but that's not what's important. What's important is that he has declared his love for you. And maybe you're concerned about who he didn't pick. Maybe you're concerned that there's such a thing as double predestination, that God chooses some to be firewood and some to be heavenly glory. Well, here's the good news. As I read it, God chooses people that you and I would never choose. God places his love on the ones who need it the most, the ones who are the farthest from him, the ones who are in the deepest darkness. Matthew, the tax collector. Simon, the zealot, the terrorist. Zacchaeus, the thief. Peter, the denier. Have I not just mentioned all of us in some, some respect? So here's the good news, that God chooses and places his love on those that we wouldn't. And I want to also challenge you. This is where I may make a few of you angry, and that's okay. I want to point out that you actually practice double predestination yourselves, every single one of you. Yesterday, you encountered how many people? How many of them did you share the gospel with? You double predestinarian, you. You chose some to place if you thought it was up to you, you chose some to actually offer the words of life and you chose some to not. Why are you so angry with God if that happened to be true about him, which I don't think it is? Actually, You would hang God for it, but not yourself. See, here's the good news. It ain't up to you to share it with everybody. It's, it's not predicated on what you do. It's all predicated on what God does, which sets us free to actually share the gospel winsomely and beautifully and richly and in a real way that is relational, not fatalistic, not deterministic. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but if it were all up to me, I'm in trouble because I have failed miserably. I failed miserably this morning at Starbucks Coffee. I didn't share it with anybody, and there were people clearly in there who didn't believe as I believe. Does that mean I shouldn't share, that I'm free to not share because hey, God's going to figure it all out anyway, right? No, that's not what this is saying at all. Not what this is saying at all because, again, that would be fatalism and determinism. He goes on to say, in, in love he predestined us for adoption. Again, that, that word adoption means that we're being brought into a family. Here's why that's beautiful. is It's not that we are being brought in as slaves to God. And even though that language is used in Romans 6, it, the real understanding in Romans 8, if you remember, is that we have become sons and daughters of the Most High God so that we could run to him crying, Abba, Father. How beautiful it is that God is bringing us into a kingdom as his children. That's critical, and not just as his slaves and servants. Because children get treated way different than slaves and servants do, don't they? 
And we, by his adoption, predestined before even the foundation of the world, we have been chosen as children and granted access to all of the spiritual blessings. How generous and gracious is our God. It says it was according to the purpose of his will, again, not any outside force, not any deterministic thing, not any fatalistic thing. It was what he chose to do. I can't help but think of the moment when Abram was crying out for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what God said? Abram said, please don't destroy him. Why? Because he had family in Sodom and Gomorrah, a lot in his family. He said, if there be any 50 righteous people, preserve it. He couldn't find 50. If there be 40, couldn't find 40. If there be 30, 20, 10. And so it is not that the Lord is utterly bound by forces outside of himself. All of it comes from within himself. And fortunately for you and I, that which is within himself is characterized by love and grace and mercy in far greater measure than we could ever comprehend. The only position that we could land on otherwise that would be cogent would for us to become universalists. You can't go halfway. So, it goes on, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the whole point of God redeeming us is so that he would, his grace would be glorified. And so that he would be celebrated in worship. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds horrifically narcissistic. Now, doesn't it? That he would save some and deny others so that he could be worshipped. I mean, surely there's a better way. But look at what it said he would be celebrating. His what? Glorious grace. If we're celebrating his glorious grace, that means that we have received something that is incomprehensible and that we couldn't earn and that we couldn't merit and that we couldn't generate. And so as we praise him, we're praising him because of our redemption, which he has so graciously given to us in Christ. Let's move down to verses 7 through 10. Now what we're going to see is he's going to begin to unpack some of the specifics of what this is. And this is critical for us to be able to walk through the specifics. And in fact, what I want you to do this maybe today or this week is to think through how each of these things individualistically have been granted to you and why they're important. All right? So let's move through this. Verses 7 through 10. It says, In Him, picking up on that, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Let me pause for just a second. How many of you enjoy shame and guilt? How many of you love walking around feeling ashamed? Well, if you do, you're weird. And I can say that in love. How many of you love being guilty? Oh, man, I, lo- I just love knowing I've done something terrible and that I-, I can't even go around those places anymore. That's great. I can't wait for people to feel weird, like people are looking at me like they know, like you're just one step away from some sort of deep paranoia. Like, that's exciting. Right? No, no one of us, no one of us could rightly say, I love being guilty and ashamed. Not without having some sort of deep root of bitterness and awfulness within us. So in redemption, what God has done in his great generosity is he's saying, in Christ, through the shedding of his blood, through the brokenness of his body, I take away all of your guilt and your shame. Your sins past, 
present and future. Yes, my mind was just blown. So should yours be. I don't understand how even my future sins are paid for. I'm with you. That makes me want to worship, not go out and do some really dumb stuff. As Paul says, should we sin so that grace should abound? No. No. So it's amazing that the Lord takes away our shame and our guilt. And I can't tell you what a freeing thing that was. As some of you know my story, I was a radical anti-theist. And what that means is, is that I hated God. It wasn't that I was just a casual atheist, right? I mean, I was just like, yeah, you know, God, whatever. No, I basically drew a line in the sand. I said, if you want to evangelize me, you are this close to picking an intellectual fight for sure, but this close to a fist fight. I will physically harm you if you try to share this trash with me. And one of the reasons that I believed that way was my uncle, who was the only Christian in our family, he had uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. And as I watched him the day that he suffocated to death, he weighed 102 pounds from 250, 6'3", big strapping man. In fact, I just looked at his picture the other day. Um... I declared, if God exists, he must be one of two things, and it doesn't really matter. He must either be malevolent, meaning that he is seeking to destroy that which he created, or he's indifferent, and I don't know the difference. If he's indifferent and powerful and steps away and lets a falling world collapse in on itself, well, then he's the same thing as being malevolent now, isn't he? But I don't believe in him at all, so that helps now, doesn't it? So I was a raging radical anti-theist. I was also a raging alcoholic. I was also suicidal. Interesting. I happened to work with a man who was paralyzed from the neck down for about 10 years. And I watched John King every single night. And he never once showed a single solitary moment's worth of depression or, or anything that came close. And I watched him like a hawk. And it suddenly dawned on me, John's a Christian is paralyzed from the neck down, can't move anything but his head from side to side, you can't even hear his voice, and somehow this joker's got joy. And I, who don't believe in God at all, want to blow my brains out in a drunken stupor. Even I'm smart enough to figure out something's not cogent there. And so the Lord protected me for years as I worked with John every Friday and Saturday night. The, the times when I would probably have destroyed my brain cells at the greatest rate. And so, over time, I began to realize that what I believed wasn't even reasonable. And when I became a Christian, the Lord drew me to himself at a very large Baptist church in Gainesville, Georgia. I remember the first thing I thought when I stood up and realized that something had changed. I, I took a breath, and I thought, that's what it feels like to breathe. And I knew I was a new creation. I knew that the shame and the guilt that I'd carried for so long that made me want to die, that made me want to destroy myself via addiction and other things, was no longer worthy of who I was becoming in Christ. And so I fully and and, and am so blessed to be able to say I carry no shame and guilt any longer. Does that mean I'm perfect, Susan? Trick question. Don't mess up. No, I can answer that. I am not perfect by no stretch of the imagination. And so 
Uh, it's not that I'm perfect, but I don't, I don't have to own those things anymore. Those things do not define me. That brokenness does not declare my humanity. My humanity is now declared in full in redemption through the blood of Christ. Amen? And you too, who are Christians, should be able to walk in this newness of life free from shame and guilt. That's one of the blessings that he's saying that you receive. Who would not want such a blessing? And so here God is being so gracious. And I love what Charles Simeon says. Listen to Charles Simeon, one of my favorite people, a person whom I, I kind of pattern uh, and hope that my ministry will be patterned after. He says, be ye full of praise and thanksgiving, ever cleaving to Christ by whom your redemption has been wrought and adoring God by whom the Savior himself was sent into the world. See, a lot of us believe that if you do believe in Jesus, maybe you think that Jesus has saved you from God, the Old Testament God. Well, that's not true either. No, he has saved you to God. Because the Old Testament God is just as full of grace as the New Testament God is. It's not, it's not you know, it's, it's, it's on us if we have not done the work to seek out the, the true fullness of what the Ark of the Old Testament is teaching us. It too teaches us that God is generous and gracious. And so here we have in this first thing that Paul is unpacking straight away, this, this redemption. And I love that he says that he lavished upon us in his grace. How many of you love it when someone gives you something and you can say, wow, that was lavish? Now, well, that's not a term we use. That sounds like a Victorian term almost, right? But it's a beautiful term and I love it. I love it when I think about all that the Lord has lavished upon me in his grace. And so it's important for us to recognize that you've been given far more than you ever deserved, you ever earned, you've ever merited, and that it is all according to God's grace. And it says this, picking it up in verse 8, it says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That goes back to proving again, this is not determinism, this is not fatalism, this is actually something that was thought through, it is something that is cogent, something that is beautiful. And it goes on to say, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Well, let me ask you a question. Is our country, is our city is the city in which you live is the culture in which you live united are there any divisions anywhere holy cow they're everywhere everywhere and what hope do you have that the politicians that we've elected and this is not a political statement by the way but what hope do you have in any of the politicians that we've elected to actually be able to unite anything what is your hope in that if we just had enough money if we could just pour enough money into it, we could unite all things. Who believes that? None of us should because it has been proven again and again and again that it is not a resource problem. It is not a leadership problem. It is a heart problem. We don't want to be united. We don't want to dine at the same table together. We don't want to love one another naturally. We just don't which is one of the reasons that so many people look at our tribe, Christians, and say, man, you guys are some of the, you, you hate each other. You're some of the meanest people to each other I've ever seen, much less your neighbor. Woe be unto us that that is the description of us. 
shows we don't understand the gospel at all. And so here we have this promise that there's coming a day because of Christ's finished and perfect work in which all things will be united. And no more will we dine at the table separated by all of the different ideologies, by all of the different things that keep us from one another. Finally, we will be able to dine in full. Think about some of the best meals you've ever had with the people that you love. And this blows that out of the water in completeness. Praise be to God that he's so generous that he longs to unite all things together when we clearly see that so many things are fractured and falling apart. Is that me being fatalistic? No, actually, I think it's me being realistic. It doesn't take you long in the reading of the newspaper to figure out we can't hold all things together. We can't trust the authorities over us. We can't, there's so much that we just can't do. It's not there. But here our God is promising that he will unite it. So how generous and lavish has God's grace been to you? Again, to the measure that you can answer this question is the measure to which you can worship. If you can limit how much grace God has granted to you, then you have limited your worship. The second thing that he brings up, picking it up in verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So what's the inheritance John Frame says, well, why the inheritance is God. We are receiving God in full. Now, who cares? Why that? Well, God contains all things in himself. He is the creator of the universe, the, the redeemer of all things, the grace giver, the lavish and merciful. Praise be to God that we get to receive him in full, the inheritance. In addition to that inheritance, we also have access to all of the spiritual blessings between the now and the not yet. This is not just a heavenly reality. This is something we can access even now. What a beautiful grace to us who continue to live in a fallen world who so desperately need hope time and time and time again. God grants us this inheritance. So if you, if you were to suddenly inherit a fortune from someone that you, some aunt or uncle you didn't even know you had. Let's say Aunt Bessie. Bessie seems like a nice, generous name, doesn't it? And so, so she gives you this fortune that's going to change the rest of your life. You will never want or need again. Who would you tell? Let's be honest. You would blow up Facebook. You would blow up Twitter. You would blow up Dayspring. They might still do Dayspring. Okay, I'm, I'm aged out. I got it. I mean, you would blow up every possible method and means to let people know that you had been generously and lavishly engraced with that which is going to carry you for the rest of your life. Christian, do you know that you've been given an inheritance? A fortune that has changed your eternity. Whom will you tell? I really kind of painted that one into a corner now, didn't I? But we should be painted into the corner. We should recognize that the value of what we've been given is worthy of us sharing it with others in the ways in which we've been gifted. Now again, to you, the introvert, I know you just freaked out. I get it. I get that you don't want to go running around saying things in public. All right, good on you. I understand. I know how you're wired. I'm married to one. 
But there are ways and means by which you can if you seek them and you know what your gifting is and it can be applied such that the, in, the, in the context of the kingdom, we as a church are doing that as a whole. You do not have an excuse. You are without excuse for not using your gift. I don't blame you for not wanting to use your gift in a way that you're not gifted. But if you don't seek the means and the ways by which you can use your gift, now that's on you. And we're offering that to you in a number of different ways, right? I'll work with you one-on-one. -on -one. Greg is willing to work with you. We're willing to give you any and every resource that you need to be able to fully do what God has called you to do with the inheritance in which he's given you. And then the last thing that he offers us, he's given us redemption. He's given us this amazing inheritance. Now listen at verses 13 and 14. It says, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what did he just say? How many of you like getting something that you're then responsible for keeping up with? That it gets, it, somebody grants you this large amount of money and says, look, if you don't deal with it rightly, I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to take it away from you. Is that, is that assurance? Is that comforting to you? Listen at what the fullness of God's grace and his generosity is. Not only does he take away your shame and your guilt, not only does he grant you access to the inheritance as sons and daughters, you, that's the positive side, he also says, I'm going to make sure that it is yours for an eternity in the power of the Holy Spirit. You are mine. No man can take you from my hand. For those of you who, as a Christian, have walked through the valley of doubt, how comforting is this to you? In the deep and the dark of the night where you began to wonder if you still were what you one time thought you were, and the devil whispers low, no, you are not. God screams from the back of eternity, no, you are. And the Christ who has ascended to the right hand of the Father leans across the throne and says, no, that child is mine making intercession for us, his saints, even as we struggle to live in a fallen and broken and ununited world. How full the generosity and grace of God that he would take away our shame and our guilt, that he would give us so rich an inheritance and also to say that it, it ain't up to you to keep. I'm going to make sure in the power of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Trinity is in play here. You noticed? God who sent the Son who sent the Holy Spirit to make sure that all that we have in him is ours from now until kingdom come and beyond. How great is our God. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says. He says, the spirit consciously received is the guarantee of our inheritance, the pledge given to believers by God to assure them that the glory of the life to come, promised in the gospel, is a well-founded hope, a reality, and not an illusion. That's beautiful, isn't it? That it is a reality that we have been given. That we get to walk in a newness of life that is not dependent upon us in any way, shape, or form. And yet we get to participate in it. And yet the measure to which we understand it and enjoy it is dependent on us, as it turns out. As we are to, called to worship. Now, did I just speak out of both sides of my mouth? No. I said, your redemption, that which you have been granted, predestined, and given as the elect, is not dependent on you, but your ability to enjoy it, your ability, your conscious walking in it, your uh, ability to, to, to live in it in, in a new way, it is 
it is dependent on you as to how, how much do you look at it? How much do you worship in it? How much do you even consider it? See, we're quick to ask the hard questions of God, but we're not quick to receive them. As I've said before, we want law. We just don't want to be kept accountable to whether or not we kept it. We want for somebody to tell us how then we should live, but we don't want anybody to ever say, well, this is how you're living. Isn't that weird? Doesn't make sense at all to me. It's totally unreasonable. So how does assurance affect your freedom in worship and service in the kingdom? See, if you are assured of who you are in Christ, then that frees you up to use your gift in the broadness of the kingdom so that your faith is strengthened. You wonder why your faith is weak, Christian, because you're not exercising it in one iota. Isaiah 58 says, if you want to see me, then come and join in the work where I am. Anybody know Isaiah 58? Where is he? Among the naked and the homeless and the marginalized and the people we wouldn't choose and the people we don't want to go to church with and the people we don't want to put up with. That's where he is. And we wonder why our faith is weak. So, how do we apply all this? Listen to what Peter T. O'Brien says. He says, Paul's desire is that this adoration might overflow to his readers. That's us. So that we will be stimulated to respond as he does and give glory to God for all of the gracious blessings due him. So, I want to encourage you to take time today and this week as an individual with your families instead of having me for lunch and what you thought about what I said, have this for lunch. Consider your redemption, the fact that God has taken away your guilt and your shame. Why is that important? What does that mean to you? Do you own that in full? Is there something that you're clinging to that you think that God can't redeem or you're afraid somebody's going to find out? When the Lord has paid for it in full through his son and the brokenness of his body and the shedness of his blood, do you understand the heavenly inheritance of which you've been given that has an impact on how you live today? Are you aware of all that that is, all of the promises and the blessings? And are you walking in assurance as one who has been sealed and guaranteed in the Holy Spirit? And how does that assurance affect how you live? See, these are critical things for us to think about, aren't they? And to think about what we push against. Like, uh, um, if you've ever read the book by J.C. Ralph Holiness, he admits, and I know this to be true, some people don't get assurance in this lifetime. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian. For some reason, they battled doubt. One of the greatest was John Bunyan. I stood in their midst for 10 years. I wasn't sure if I would die a Christian. Bad theology, but true to life. So some of you may be struggling with assurance. Maybe you struggle with it because you haven't even considered it. You don't consider what Scripture says about what is due you in God's election. Why did I just say do? Because if he's given it to you, you get all this. All this because he chose you. As we close out this morning, I want to remind you that next week we're going to be taking communion. So I want you to pay attention to your email. I'll give you some things to think about because is that not something we should prepare for? We should prepare to take communion. What a beautiful way to prepare to consider these things. What does the communion table teach us? All of this. We're going to do that next week um, as we talk about how the church is called to be generous. So make sure that you are preparing your hearts and you are thinking it through so that it can be this, the faith-strengthening blessing that that means of grace is intended for you. Amen? Let me pray for us, and let me also say this. If any of you need prayer, 
We'll have elders in the back corner. And we would love to pray for you. If you're wrestling with any of this, let's talk. Let's not ignore it. Let's not push away from it because we don't have a hard conversation. Let's think this thing. Let's be thinking people, right? If you need mercy of some kind, our deacons will also be in the back. If you have some sort of physical need, you're struggling in any way, shape, or form, and we can serve you and love you as the church, we want to do that as well. And so as I pray, um, be considering, and, and Josh is going to come up, and uh, we're just going to do one song, uh, time-wise. And so I, I ran over. I'm sorry. I, I stole that. But, um, but you get grace. You get redemption. You get all these other things, right? It's better than that. And so, uh, so um, but know this. I love you. And I do. I love you because God has loved me. And loved me in such an incredible way that it gives me the freedom to love you. And I want for us to be able to walk through these things as people who respect one another. And yes, we have all kind of things that we bring to the table baggage-wise and all kind of struggles and all kind of doubts and all kinds of life experience. And, and none of this denies any of that. But if we're not willing to work through it, we can never go on. We can't move forward to be further transformed into the image of Christ as he has so lavishly and generously offered to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you <laughs> that you love us and that you offer us so much and that your generosity is just almost incomprehensible. It's so good that we push against it. It's so good that we can't even believe that it's true sometimes. That's how good your generosity is. And yet, you offer us in Christ alone by grace alone, through our faith alone, all of these things, redemption and inheritance and, and also um, assurance and in the, in the sealing and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we could consider those things wisely, recognizing that it's not fatalism, it's not determinism, it was relationship that you chose mysteriously before we were ever even formed. Thank you that you choose people we wouldn't choose. You go to places we don't even have the courage to go. Most of us being evidence of that. And we thank you that you have been so gracious and so good to grant us your word, to be able to think things through and see things clearly. In Christ's name, amen.